Next, this month's special series, Focus on Global Medicine. ReachMD is taking an in-depth look at how medicine is working toward health and longevity for people around the world. Join us all this month for the latest medical research and treatment across borders. Cleopatra is said to have died of a self-inflicted snake bite after hearing of Mark Antony's death. Snake bites still do occur, although we don't learn much about how to treat them in medical school. What are the latest treatment options that physicians need to know about? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Mary Lushars, your host, and joining me today is Simon Jensen. Dr. Jensen is the founding director of the Global Snake Bite Initiative. He's an emergency physician at Nambour General Hospital in Queensland, Australia. He's also the clinical research supervisor at the UPNG AVRU Snakebite Research Project at the University of Papua New Guinea. Welcome, Dr. Jensen, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Mary. So what are the signs of envenomation? When we teach about envenomation, we like to break it down into little pieces so it's easier for people to remember. Some non-specific symptoms and signs which are and not specific for envenomation, and that includes things like nausea and headache, abdominal pain, the sort of things that someone might experience if they thought they were going to die from a snake bite, whether they were or not. And then there are the specific signs of envenomation, which are more specific for snake bite envenomation rather than any other medical condition. So there's some local signs and symptoms such as pain, swelling, blistering, bruising, bleeding, which you may or may not experience, and then some systemic things such as coagulopathy and neurotoxicity being the, the most important ones, and then a bag of other things including myotoxicity, cardiotoxicity, renal toxicity. What's actually in the venom of a snake or does it vary by species? Oh, absolutely, it varies by species. That's why you can only use the antivenom for one particular species for that species. They're complex mixtures of multiple types of proteins of various sizes, many of which have enzymatic activity or act specifically on receptors. And what are the different types of snake bites that you see in your particular practice? Most of the snake bites uh, that we see in Australia, as opposed to Papua New Guinea, are actually not by venomous snakes or don't cause envenomation. So about 90% of our snake bite cases are actually not envenomed, which is, which is good. Um, whereas in Papua New Guinea, almost all of the patients who present to hospital after a snake bite have been in venom. So the situation is completely different. And, and as you know, the, the medical services and the supply of antivenom in Papua New Guinea is completely different from in Australia. Could you just describe for our listeners who might not be familiar with the remoteness or the terrain of Papua New Guinea, what the situation is there with patients who might get bitten by snakes? Well, it's a very rugged country. The highest mountain, I think, is about 16,000 feet. The mountain range, well, already two, but essentially forms one ridge which separates the north coast of the country from the south. And there are artificial divisions which lead to patients actually belonging in one province but having to travel to the next province for medical care. 85% of the people live in rural areas and 50% at least of the population actually have to be provided with medical care by mining medical centres and by churches because the government medical centres are incapable of doing so. And in fact, as many as perhaps 80% of the medical facilities in Papua New Guinea are not functioning properly or in fact at all. Yeah, it's said that in the US 
in North America, there are maybe about 8,000 snake bites annually. How would that number compare to what would be seen in, you know, a third world country like Papua New Guinea? Well, we're not too sure. This is the problem in under-resourced countries and developing nations such as Papua New Guinea that uh, snake bite is, is not reportable and there isn't good systems for recording data and particularly snake bite is a major problem because it actually in the majority of countries isn't a reportable disease. So that's a, a problem and in fact only in April of 2009 did WHO recognise snake bite as a neglected tropical disease and adds it to the bottom of its list which you'll find on the website. If you do have a patient who's in a remote area is it best for the medical personnel to evacuate that patient immediately or to administer potentially life-saving treatment on the spot? Well, first aid should always be administered as soon as possible in all situations, even outside a hospital. The nature of first aid depends a lot on local practices, particularly whether the bite is from a viper or from a leopard. So in other words, essentially whether the bite is from a snake that causes predominantly local toxicity or predominantly systemic toxicity. Um, there's actually little evidence, uh, experimental evidence to support anything more than just immobilisation of the bitten part and the whole patient. Now things like tourniquets are discouraged and other modern, so-called modern ideas of sucking and electric shock and the use of snake bite kits, those are all dangerous and unhelpful. And in Australia we use a method called pressure mobilisation bandaging which is introduced about 30 years ago on the basis of some non-human experimental evidence. And then after any of that simple first aid is applied, the victim must be transported rapidly to a centre where it both has antivenom and someone with the expertise to manage the snake bite and administer that antivenom in an appropriate way. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Lushas, and this is a Clinician's Roundtable. Today I'm talking to Dr. Simon Jensen, and we're discussing snake bites and the latest management options for those. So, Dr. Jensen, you mentioned some snake bites exhibit local toxicity and then those that cause systemic toxicity. Could you just explain to our listeners how you classify those types of snakes and which snakes fall into which category? The majority of snake bites in the U.S., are those which cause local toxicity. So all the cradlids, specifically rattlesnakes, but your other species of cottonmouths and moccasins, they cause predominantly local toxicity. And in fact, in the US, that means that the vast majority of patients will survive a snake bite in the US. A very small percentage, probably less than 1%, are from a leopard snakes, such as coral snakes, which cause predominantly systemic toxicity and specifically neurotoxicity. Coral snakes cause a presynaptic neurotoxicity which damage the nerve cells and then the patients can be managed by actually being ventilated for several days and in fact that's what happens. And that's the kind of toxicity that we see in Papua New Guinea with the predominant biting species which is the Papua New Guinea taipan where irreversible damage to the nerve cells occurs as the skeletal muscle cells at the presynaptic terminal within four to six hours. So it's very important that the antivenom is administered as soon as possible. Now in Papua New Guinea, where a lot of the patients are living out in the rural areas, then it's very important to actually have the antivenom out there where they live because it can take them many hours to get to help. You mentioned a cobra having escaped from one of the zoos and cobras and a leopard species, which in general causes systemic toxicity, particularly neurotoxicity. 
the, the spitting covers, for example, can cause local cytotoxicity. So the venom's designed to damage your eyes, but if it's injected into the skin, it will cause skin necrosis as well. And what is the sort of likelihood of a patient who's been bitten by a snake that causes local toxicity having an allergic reaction or, say, an infection at the wound site? Allergic reactions are important because they're one of the causes of sudden death, particularly in people who handle snakes frequently, and I specifically am thinking of amateur keepers here. And yeah, amateur keepers are quite a major problem, but also people who are working in reptile facilities and, and handling snakes and being maybe in contact with their venom or proteins from the snakes very frequently. So they are at risk of allergic reactions, and that may be in the form of a rash, but more severe reactions can, of course, be anaphylaxis, and if that's unrecognised, lead to death of the person. How do you work out which snake might have been responsible for a bite if there's no witness to what the snake looked like or the snake actually having bitten a person? In some countries, such as the US, it actually doesn't matter too much because you have a polyvalent antivenom which covers virtually all of the snakes. In the US, there's only the need to identify the patient has actually been envenomed. So that's the first thing. Otherwise, the identity, the description of the snake is helpful but should never be entirely relied upon. So we use things like where and when the patient was bitten, what symptoms they have, and other clinical features that suggest a particular clinical syndrome, the symptoms, the signs, and of course the results of lab tests as well. In Australia and in Papua New Guinea, although it's not registered there, we have the benefit of an immunodiagnosis kit which is produced by Commonwealth Serum Laboratories here in Australia for Australasian snakes, which uses an enzyme, immunoassay, using rabbit antibodies and that actually tells you which antivenom to use if you use a bite site swab or a sample of the urine. Could you describe a particular patient that you might have treated or heard about which you had to kind of work out what type of snake bit them and go from there? Well, I was thinking just the other day about children and snake bite. One of the things about children is they can present in unusual ways, they can present collapsed and particularly in Australia where brown snake bites cause most of the few deaths that we see in Australia can cause a state of altered consciousness or seizures in children and in Papua New Guinea that taipans can cause significant abdominal pain and vomiting and this can be confused with other things and in fact there have been cases in, in Papua New Guinea where children have come close to being taken to theatre to have their appendix out because of abdominal pain and tenderness and vomiting and only to develop fortunately signs of neurotoxicity just prior to them being operated on. How expensive is antivenom? Well it depends where you live. The two most expensive countries in the world for antivenom are the US and Papua New Guinea at the moment. In the US, I'm not certain what the unit price is for antivenom. The starting dose is, is four to six vials, and then there are often repeat doses or infusion doses given after that. So it can cost many thousands of dollars for a treatment. The most expensive of the antivenoms that are available in Australia costs around 1500 to 2000 Australian dollars. But when that antivenom gets to Papua New Guinea and it's not available to hospitals and patients have to buy it from pharmacies, they can pay as much as twice that. So they can pay 
be expected to pay uh, to save the life of their relative up to four thousand US dollars, and that's a major problem which we're trying to deal with at the moment. So that's not what it actually costs, I think, to produce these antivenoms. We've been able to produce uh, an experimental antivenom with a, a partner, a, a well-respected antivenom manufacturer in Central America for around a tenth of that price. So uh, at the moment we're hoping to very soon run a comparative trial of the Australian product versus our new product. In India, a vial of antivenom costs as little as $10.00. However, there have been reports of up to 150 vials being used for the treatment of one patient, which then puts the cost at 1,500 US dollars. Clinically, what's the one most important test a doctor can do to assess neurotoxicity of a snake bite if you suspect it? Neurotoxicity from snakes is interesting. It always starts with the eye muscles. There will be either ptosis, which would be resting and active ptosis, and ophthalmoplegia, so an inability to move one or both of the eyes. And that always happens first, always regardless of the species. And following quite soon after that are the, are the critical things of the effect uh, the airway muscles. So mouth opening is reduced, tongue protrusion is reduced, and speech and swallow are affected. And those are the things we look for because that tells you that patient's airway is at risk that may not be able to stop their tongue from falling back and blocking their airway. And that's one of the critical things that kills a lot of patients who die from neurotoxic snake bite. Dr Jensen, finally, what's a Global Snake Bite Initiative? The Global Snake Bite Initiative is something that has come out of the Global Issues and Clinical Toxinology Conference in Melbourne at the end of 2008, which is really the first purely clinical toxinology conference ever held in the world. And the initiative aims to reduce the incidence of snake bite worldwide and to improve the outcome from snake bite worldwide. And as well as that, to increase political and public awareness of snake bite as being a significant uh, medical problem. For example, there's a huge amount of funding available for uh, mine victims. And yet where that is available, snake bite victims are not able to access those same disability services. One of the problems we have is that we don't know exactly how many snake bites there are worldwide. And so one of the important things that we need to work on is trying to get better data from all the countries where we know that snake bite is, is an issue. And the other thing, of course, is to try and get antivenoms and good antivenoms to those countries. And so there are a lot of issues for us to work through. Well, thanks so much for your time, Dr. Jensen. It'd be great to keep talking, but it's been really interesting. You're listening to Reach MDXM, the channel for medical professionals. This is the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Luchars, and we have been talking to Dr. Simon Jensen, who is a snake bite expert and an emergency physician and the founding director of the Global Snake Bite Initiative. We welcome your questions and comments at www.reachmd.com. Thanks very much for joining us. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Global Medicine. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, please visit us at reachmd.com.